please be advised, this episode may include depictions of murder, sexual content, and foul language that is not suitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome back to Wickedness. I'm Lenny. And I'm Matt. And happy Easter. Or it was. Or it was Easter. Yeah, this past Sunday. (sighs) We had the grandkids over. We ate. We did the church thing. It was awesome. Yeah, it was a good time. It was fun watching the kiddos Mm -hmm. go uh, Easter egg hunting. And I am still stuck on the fact that Bob Stoops showed up to one of our church services. Right? (laughs) I still think that was super cool. And if you don't know who Bob Stoops is. Google him. Googling. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was nice. Yeah. Yeah, was. you're fangirling on him a little it bit. It totally was. Even yeah. though I was respectful, like I he came to the later service and I'd been there all day for the three that we had three services. So when he came to the last one and I was done singing, I was leaving. So I didn't get to like totally mob him afterwards. Although the thought did cross my mind to hang out. <laughs> get a picture but it was church so that would have been really disrespectful like, leave the guy alone yeah let him live his life but i was super fangirling yeah that's a big i mean the famous people it is awesome mm-hmm. um just because man i've seen this person in the movies or i've seen him on tv doing things or what have you yeah but they are people they and are people yes and i had to i had to like i had to rein it in a little bit <laughs> right i was like oh my gosh it's bob stoops but anyway yeah, so I'll we let had it go. We, we had it. We had a good Easter, um, and we had a great Monday paying the taxes. Oh god, that was horrible. It was horrible. So I know that we. I mean, we're not late, late releasing this episode because Tuesdays are our day that we usually release in, release our episodes, but it's usually in the morning. But after finishing paying my taxes yesterday. The wound to my soul. I know. It was like, <laughs> oh my goodness. I was just not in the spirit of, of recording because I was just like, nope, I am not going to be any fun. But the silver lining is, is it's a good thing we had the ability to pay. Yes. The enormous amount of taxes <laughs> yes. that we had to pay. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Let's hope that we don't have another year Yeah, like I think that. next year will be not so bad. Oh my gosh. I hope. Right. So, yeah, so that was, that's, I mean, let's just jump into this. This is part three of Jeffrey McDonald. And you said there's going to be a part four? Yeah, there's going to be a part four, people. Oh, my goodness. I'm just kidding. This won't ever end. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) No, this is it. This is it. We're not, we're not doing a part four. So, 
part one covered Jeff- Jeffrey's life, you know, all the way up through the murders of his family. And then part two last week, we talked about his hearing, his life after the charges were dropped, and then how his in-laws pushed for the investigation to continue. And he was formally indicted, I think, is where we wrapped it up. Yes, that's what I remember. So. And I don't remember a whole lot in life, but I do remember <laughs> that. You know, the only way I remembered it is because you detailed it. If you wouldn't have said all that and summarized <laughs> it, I would have been like, where did we leave off? Yeah, yeah, that's how it goes because it's been a week, you know. A lot of things happen. A lot. Easter bunnies, shoot, taxes. You know, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> you shoot. Know, like, seriously, it's Tuesday. And I feel like it is the longest Monday ever. I do, too. This week, I really feel like it's Tuesday, and I feel like it is the week is just dragging. Yes. Yes. It needs to be over. It but needs you know to what be makes Friday. it better? What? Wicked is true crime in the unknown. <laughs> and listening to our podcast. That makes your day, right? Yes, actually. I like our, I like our podcast. Yes. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> All right, so grand jury in North Carolina on January 24th, 1975. He was arrested in California within an hour after they, the grand jury decided to go ahead and indict him on this day. So they were really fast about, we're going to indict him in North Carolina and then contacting California, and they got him arrested. He was bailed out for $100,000 on January 31st, 1975, which is a lot back in the 1970s. That's but, a whole lot. Uh, yeah. Then his attorneys tried to argue double jeopardy, but the judge ruled against that and set a trial date for August 18th, 1975. Then on August 15th, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals stayed the trial and formed a panel that ended up ordering that the indictment be dismissed on speedy trial grounds in a two-to-one split on January 23rd, 1976. This went on for a while. Like, they went back and forth with his appeals and stuff. An appeal on behalf of the government led to an 8-0 to zero reinstatement of the indictment, though, by the U.S. Supreme Court on May 1st, 1978, about two years later. Wow. Yeah. It went so, way up. Yeah, so this guy's out on bail, and he's living life, but, but his troubles are far from over. Mm-hmm. Then on October 22nd, 1978, the Fourth Circuit Court rejected Jeffrey's double jeopardy arguments, and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to review the decision on March 19th, 1979. So it's now official... He's got to go on trial. So his trial starts on July 16th, 1979, and he was charged with three counts of murder that he pled not guilty to. Jury selection took three days. Then the trial got underway. The defense was blocked in several ways that really led Jeffrey to lose hope of being acquitted at this point. So some of the ways that the judge denied a motion to admit a 1979 psychiatric evaluation that deemed that Jeffrey was not capable of committing a crime like this. And I can kind of see why. Like, the murders happened in 1970. So a gap of about nine years for yeah. someone to come in and say he's not capable of, of committing a murder. Well, maybe not now. Cap- well, anybody's capable of anything almost, right? Yeah, but no, my point is, like, not today. Today, if I got a psychiatric evaluation and someone said, yeah, you couldn't have done that, but nine years ago... Oh, yeah, I know I, what you mean. You know, my right. mental stability is right. completely different. And what I mean is any day. I mean, it just depends on where yeah, people are Yeah, you better watch your back. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Just kidding. So, so anyway, with a gap like that, I don't think they can speak to what he was feeling in 1970. Sure. So I agree that, that the judge probably shouldn't have let that in, just mm-hmm. like he didn't. Mm-hmm. But the judge did say it was because Jeffrey's attorneys weren't pushing an insanity plea. So he didn't want the 
the trial to be hindered by opinions and contradictory psychiatric testimony from both prosecution and defense witnesses. He thought it would slow things down. Well, that, and I couldn't, and I thought that's where you might be going a little bit, but I'm like, okay, how are they going to throw this insanity plea out? Because the guy's a doctor, he's a Green Beret, evidently he has it all together to get yeah. to that level right. of, you know, just work. And then he's got a wife and kids and yeah. seems to have a good family, so I, I don't buy the insanity thing. Right, well, they weren't going for insanity anyway. So the defense submitted a motion to suppress admitting Jeffrey's pajama top as evidence, and that was denied by the court, which, again, I can see why they would say, no, we're not going to suppress this evidence. It's a key thing. It's a big deal. It's a big part of the prosecution's case, and and it should be admitted. It's the pajama top he was wearing. Why would you not? Right. So I agree that the judge should have put that in, but it really hurt the defense's stuff. Another thing that they really hurt that really hurt the defense was that the judge allowed the prosecution to admit into evidence the 1970 copy of Esquire magazine that was found in Jeffrey's house at the time of the murder. And it had that extensive article of the Manson family murders in it, which could have motivated Jeffrey to write the word pig in blood on the headboard of the bed. Oh, yeah, sure. So this wasn't good for the defense either. But again, I totally agree. It should have been in there. Mm -hmm. It was a part of the crime scene. Right. You need to have everything that was there right. as part of this whole court hearing. So the thing was, though, the judge did rule to not include any of the Article 32 transcript in the trial. He refused to allow it because he felt it was based on opinion rather than fact, which I can see where that comes from. But mm -hmm. to me, I'd be like, as a prosecutor, I'd be like, but I really need that Article 32 transcript to be allowed because we need to be able to, what he said here, compare it to what he's saying you know, what he said in the transcript compared to what he's saying now on the stand right, right. kind of thing. See yeah. if he's, he's changing his story or mm -hmm. anything, but no, it wasn't allowed. Mm. So opening arguments happen with the prosecution saying Jeffrey did it and they would prove it. And the defense saying he was innocent and used the fact that the charges had been dismissed when he had been previously charged. They also stressed how Jeffrey had been trying to build his life in the past nine years since the death of his family, but others out there wouldn't allow him to move on. So the defense is like, just let this guy live his life. Yeah. You know, he, he suffered this tragedy. So the evidence against Jeffrey was the pajama top, which is hard to explain. The experts who had examined the top pointed out that the top had been stabbed while stationary. If you guys remember that from mm -hmm. the previous one. The witness, the expert witness that they had showed the jury by folding the garment and then laying it down. It lined up the stab wounds on Colette, meaning that it was laying on Colette's body when she was stabbed. Oh, wow. Right. So if that was the case, then Jeffrey definitely did this. He claimed he was wearing the pajama top and took it off to cover Colette when he called police. Ooh. Right? Okay. So mm. then there was an audio tape of Jeffrey on April 6, 1970, where he was talking about the crime with investigators in a matter-of-fact way that they played for the jury in 1979. They heard him get angry, defensive, and emotional and asking investigators why would he kill his family. He had everything going for him. He was recorded saying like this, this like it was the most ridiculous thing ever that prosecutors would accuse him of. Or not prosecutors, but investigators would accuse him of. Yeah. But, in, you know, they, that just shows his lack of emotion. You just lost your family. I know. And it's you're going to be very matter-of-fact. Right. That's not how normal people would react who just lost, or at least not in my mind. Yeah. 
So the things on his side, though, were that he had no history of domestic violence. He and his family seemed happy to the local community, and the defense stressed how the crime scene was compromised, how evidence had been lost, destroyed, and in some cases was never even collected. If you remember, they never even took fingerprints of a couple of the victims to eliminate their fingerprints from the crime scene, that kind of stuff, you know? I was wondering, too, with his history of non, you know, no domestic violence or any issues, Mm -hmm. that he thought he could get away with it because there was nothing. Like, how? Yeah. Why would I go from a, you know, zero to 100 in like seconds? Right. Like, that's, that's not normal at all. No. I mean, case in point, it shows that it can happen here. Yeah. But the likelihood, I was wondering if that was going through his mind. They're like, man, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an experienced doctor, I'm in the Army, I'm an officer, I'm a Green Beret, families, everybody knows me and loves me. Mm-hmm. Like, who's going to point the finger at me? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I can I can get, I can see that being... Just being that bullheaded. Right. And narcissistic. And narcissistic. Like, it kind of goes in line with his behavior. Oh, it does, totally. Like, I can see him doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's going to suspect me. Right. I'll just make myself a victim and they'll believe it. Oh, of course. So... They also, the defense also had a good character witness for Jeffrey, though, and a rebuttal to the pajama top stab, you know, being stabbed while moving. He said he, this witness said he wrapped a top that was similar to same type of fabric, that kind of stuff, to the pajama top around a ham and had an assistant hold it while he, while he moved it around for him while he stabbed it with an ice pick. And he got the same resultant um, stab wounds. To the pajama top, like clean mm. stab marks. Okay. No no tears or anything. Okay. So you would think that this was convincing. Right. So this is how the prosecution decided to respond to this guy. Okay. They took a shirt of similar material in front of the jury, wrapped it around a ham, and one attorney holds it and moves it around while another one stabs it. And they get uh, ragged and torn marks not clean ones. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, one of the prosecutorial members who was holding the hand, the one that was holding the ham, actually got cut. Yeah. Jeffrey didn't have any wounds. Right. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they they disproved that in 2 seconds right in yeah. front of the jury. Yeah. So it's kind of sad. <laughs> like no dude, still couldn't happen. <laughs> so they they just completely discredited this this expert that the defense had. In addition to this, only two small specks of blood from Jeffrey were found in the living room, and this is where he said he was attacked and fighting. And two small specks of blood is all they That's find. It, right. One on the Esquire magazine that they had, and one little tiny speck on his glasses. Unless you're Dexter. Right? I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Even Dexter got hurt a couple of times, but right? yeah, he kept his blood out of the crime mm-hmm. scenes. So then the defense also brought on a sort of surprise witness that had not testified at the Article 32 hearing, Helena Stokely. If you remember, she was thought to have been the woman that Jeffrey claimed was there during the attack. So the defense's plan was to get her to confess to the crimes. The defense talked to her privately for over two hours, and in the end, tried to get her to confess to the crimes, telling her to end Jeffrey's years-long suffering. Like, (laughs) they're just pushing her to confess. Yeah. They even tried to promise her immunity from prosecution due to the expiration of the statute of limitations, which I don't know if murder has a statute it of doesn't. limitations. It doesn't. But or were they saying there was some because of her involvement or knowing I or I what? Don't know. I don't know. That's I don't weird. know. But she repeatedly said she was unable to help them and didn't confess. 
So she denied having ever even seen him and wouldn't confess to something that she didn't do. Then, when she testified under oath, she denied any involvement and denied even knowing about anything about the crimes. So she's sticking to her story. She insisted she didn't remember where she had been the night of the murder. She emphasized her own drug use during the 1970s and said that that night was not the first and wouldn't be the last time she couldn't recall what she had done or where she had been. And when she had finished her testimony... The defense requested that the charges against Jeffrey be dismissed or that the judge allow testimony from the witnesses who said that Helena had confessed to them. Mm -hmm. But both of these requests were, of course, denied with the judge saying that the introduction of these witnesses wouldn't add any value to the proceedings. So he's basically just saying no. Yeah. Because it's not like Helena said, yeah, I did it or I could have done it or anything like that. So there's no grounds for them to dismiss the charges. Yeah. Like, she didn't incriminate herself Mm -hmm. on the stand. No. And she didn't give them anything. So, I, I again, agree that the judge is doing the right thing by saying, no, we're not going to pull in more witnesses to rebut against this woman. She's not the one on trial. Yeah. So, after this, Jeffrey testified on his own behalf on August 23rd and 24th, 1979. He tried to win favor with the jury by describing his life and how happy he and his family were. He showed photos of him and his family, and then he described his life since they were killed, including why he relocated to California and the reason that he worked 80-plus hours a week. And when he was cross-examined, the prosecution laid out all the evidence against him, pointing out the evidence that contradicted his story. So unfortunately, Jeffrey was unable to provide any explanations for this evidence. For example, he couldn't explain why the lumber came from under Kimberly's bed mattress or, you know, the mattress on her bed. Yeah. Um, he tried to say that the wood could have come from the utility room, but they they proved that it came from under Kimberly's bed. Right. But he's, like, yeah. trying to lead them other places. He also tried to claim that the Army investigators put too much time between the murders and when he was formally interviewed. The prosecution was also unable to discredit his story by pointing out how Jeffrey's interviews all varied slightly from when he was interviewed in the 1970s. And what he was saying at the trial, not to mention the forensic evidence contradicted his claims of how the attacks happened that night. Okay. Like he just is, he, he's trying to rebut stuff, but he's, he, he can't. He's not winning. No, No. he's not at all. He's really, really going against himself here. Mm -hmm. And this is why they, they say like sometimes defense doesn't want, doesn't want you on the stand Yeah. because you, you will say something to screw your case up. But that's, you know, that's a telltale sign of a narcissistic personality. When they want to take the stand? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, mm-hmm. I want to tell my story. Mm-hmm. I have to tell my story. Uh, yep. So all throughout this, though, Jeffrey was rebuffed. He couldn't explain any of the discrepancies that they were pointing out. So closing arguments happened. The judge wrapped it up by telling the jury they needed to either find Jeffrey not guilty, guilty of first-degree murder on each of the charges, or guilty of second-degree murder. Demur- degree murder on each of the charges so they had the three charges right so the jury deliberated for only six and a half hours like they were fast and on august 29th 1979 at 4 p.m they reached a verdict and they found him guilty on all three counts okay one count of first degree murder of Kristen, his youngest daughter Mm -hmm. and two counts of second degree murder of colette and kimberly and i think that's because they couldn't really prove intent for first degree murder charges. They really do think that he got into an argument with Colette that night 
started beating the crap out of her, mm-hmm. accidentally hit Kimberly with mm. the wood in the doorway, yeah, and then deciding to try and cover his tracks, that's when the intent came in, and that's why he got first-degree murder on the baby. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So he showed no emotion at all during the reading of this verdict, and he ended up getting three life sentences to be served consecutively. His bail was, of course, revoked, and he ended up being sent to the federal prison in California. So that just wraps up his trial portion. So now he starts his appeals. And on July 29, 1980, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed his convictions on the grounds of his Sixth Amendment right, which is the right to a speedy trial. They said it was violated because it took nine years to take him to trial. Okay. So Hmm. he actually is released on bail in August on August 22nd of 1980 Wow! and ended up going back to work as a director of emergency medicine in Long Beach, California. He gets engaged in March of 1982. Like he's, he's living his life for a few years on the outside, even after his conviction. Yeah. But six months after his, his conviction is reversed in December of 1980, the fourth circuit court refused to hear his appeal and denied his application again. So I'm not sure if they were still, if they were trying to get it dismissed like all together. Yeah. Or I, I don't know exactly what they were like trying to go for here. But in May of 1980, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to hear his case. And they determined in March of 1982, almost two years later, that his Sixth Amendment rights had not been violated. So he was rearrested and returned to federal prison. Oh, wow. Like the guy was Jeez. out for like two years, but then he has to go back. Mm-hmm. So shortly after this, he fires his lead attorney. And But he keeps the rest of his current defense team who continued to file his appeals for him. He also lost his licenses to practice medicine in the state of California and North Carolina. And I don't know if you have to get licensed in every single state. Yeah. But why only those two states would he lose his life? That just, whatever. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even really matter. Well, but that, or that's where he had licenses held. So they just right. probably got rid of those. So here's where it gets fun. In 1980, after his initial release, some of his supporters hired a private investigator to help to overturn his conviction. Like they're really trying, these supporters are really trying to help him out. Mm -hmm. The private investigator's name was Ted Gunderson. Ted reached out to Helena as a starting point after reviewing the case files. When he interviewed her, he said she confessed that she and five members of what she called the drug cult had harbored resentment toward Jeffrey because he refused to treat heroin and opium-addicted patients. And so she and her friends plotted to murder his family but to leave him alive. This private investigator says she told him all of this. According to Helena, she had called the McDonald residence on the night of February 16th to find out if the whole family was home. They had then said, said, quote, dropped mescaline, end quote, and drove to the residence. She and four others entered the home, had a confrontation with Jeffrey, trying to get him to sign a prescription for Dexedrine, but he refused and fought back, but was knocked unconscious in the living room. She said she then ran into the master bedroom where she saw death to all pigs or some quote. This is a quote from her. Death to all pigs or something like that written on the headboard. She also saw two of her friends beating Colette on the bed while her child lay next to her on the bed. Helena also insisted she had worn a beige floppy hat on that evening. She had, the, she had even taken a polygraph and 
April of 1971 with the military examiner stating, quote, it is concluded that Miss Stokely is convinced in her mind that she knows the identity of those persons who killed Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald, end quote. The examiner went on to say that Helena was convinced that she had been there that night when the murders happened. He didn't know any abnormal psychological responses, but due to Helena's own admission of being so high that night and not remembering anything, there's no way to know for sure if she's telling the private investigator the truth, but it should drive some people to question if Jeffrey did this. But this isn't the first time that Helena has confessed to someone. That's the thing. It's just the first time it was documented by an investigator. Mm-hmm. So, And, and then, I wonder what makes her want to... I mean, some people just want to come clean or what's going on. Like, why does she want to? Yeah, I don't know. And why is she like, if she's lying, why make up all this or why isn't she saying it on the stand? Yeah. I mean, obviously she doesn't want to get prosecuted and go to prison. Right. Yeah. I mean, duh. Right. But, but why let someone else go to prison? Mm -hmm. Because you're really mad on them that they won't write you a prescription. Yeah. I don't get it. But in the meantime, Jeffrey's back in jail, as we know, and nothing ever came of this confession that, that, the private investigator got from Helena. Yeah. So they continued appealing the case. And finally, in September of 1997, in light of new DNA technology, the fourth circuit court allowed his defense team to perform DNA testing on fibers and hairs found at the crime scene and on the bodies. And this is where you think, Oh, now we're going to find out he didn't do it, but no, (laughs) this is where you, you know, you find out that after the DNA testing, It was found that Helena and her boyfriend's DNA were not found anywhere in any of the items tested. Not at all. Mm -hmm. But all the hairs and fibers matched DNA from Jeffrey. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. All of it. This went on for... Or not crazy, because he did it. Right. But this went on for years, right? So in March of 2006, though, the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory announced that their testing also showed the DNA was not related to Helena or her boyfriend, which we can expect. But there was a single hair that was found in Colette's palm. It matched Jeffrey. And they also found several more on the bedspread in the master bedroom and on the top of the sheet of Kristen's bed. But, of course, this is their husband and dad. His hair is going to be all over the house, right? Mm -hmm. But a hair found um, in Colette's right palm was also matched to her own hair. Remember way back... And I think it was maybe the first episode of this yeah. one, the part one. Right. They found this hair and they said it was part of a wig. Mm-hmm. But no, it was Colette's own hair. Okay. But here's the kicker. They did find foreign hairs that did not match any of the McDonald family members or any known suspects that they had in this case. One was found on the bed sheet in the master bedroom, one on Colette's body in her leg area, and finally one found under Kristen's fingernail. The okay. baby's fingernail. Yeah. Huh. Like, okay, foreign hairs from something, but under the baby's fingernail? Yeah. That that one gets me. Right. So this prompted some people to sit up and take a little bit more notice. Okay. So on January 12, 2006, Jeffrey was granted leave to file a further appeal based on an affidavit from November of 2005 filed by the Deputy United States Marshal Jim Britt, who was served in, his, in this role during the trial. In his affidavit, he said he overheard Helena Stokely telling Prosecutor James Blackburn that she had been at Jeffrey's house on the night of the murders, and he claimed that James had threatened her with prosecution if she testified as a defense witness and admitted to this. And remember, 
She had had a private interview with the defense team and told them that she had no involvement and no memory of her whereabouts at night. And unfortunately, this appeal was denied in November of 2008 based on the fact that Helena was known to change her story many times. So they have an affidavit from a, a deputy United States marshal mm -hmm. saying that he overheard this conversation of her basically admitting to being there. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, it's not yeah it's not, not admissible because right. she's known to change her story yeah that is not cool mm -mm. to me that that is like that's a miscarriage of justice right yeah. there in my opinion yeah i'm no expert but that's how i view it everything should be a factor mm -hmm. and on april 16th 2007 jeffrey's attorney filed an affidavit another affidavit on behalf of helena's own mom who stated that her daughter had confessed to her twice that she was there when the McDonald's were killed and that her daughter was scared of the prosecutors. So Jeffrey had an appeal pending at the time and he asked that this affidavit be included with that appeal along with the development that had been sub you know, subsequently discovered to include the 2006 DNA results where they found the foreign hairs. Sure. But as we already know, those were denied. Those denials were based on jurisdictional issues though. It wasn't because they didn't want them you know, admitted. There's like pre-filing authorizations and things like that that they have to do. And if they don't do them, the courts won't even consider them. Okay. So in this case, Jeffrey had not gotten a pre-filing authorization from the circuit court for the motion to the district court. So they didn't even, they were not going to see it. Yeah. That seems so wrong to me too. Right. All this extra paperwork. It's all but, bureaucracy. But then they're like, hey, follow these steps, do this. You know, you got to do this for us to even yeah. consider it. And I kind of get it. But at the same time, I'm like, come on. Mm -hmm. But in September of 2012, the district court held an evidentiary hearing about this new DNA evidence and statements relating to key witness witnesses who offered testimony about Jeffrey's innocence. But on July 24th, 2014, the district court rejected these claims altogether and held up his, you know, upheld his conviction, his convictions. And even though Jeffrey appealed this decision to higher courts, it was affirmed and upheld by the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Fourth Circuit on December 21st, 2018. Wow. Yeah. And in April of 2021, Jeffrey tried to get a compassionate release based on his declining health because of COVID going around and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. he was denied. And, of course, he's older now. Which is surprising when they're mm -hmm. releasing all sorts of people. Yeah. During that time. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the story of Jeffrey McDonald. And there is doubt that he's actually guilty, but I think I tend to think more he's guilty. Right. But you can read you can read more about this and go, you know, do a do deeper dive if you want to. Jeffrey had hired um author Joe McGinnis to write his book called Fatal Vision, which I think is the one you read. Probably. Right? He allowed Joe to have access to all his court documents and his attorneys, and he gave him interviews. Like he made it very easy for this guy. This is sad though, because the book made Jeffrey look like a narcissistic guilt, exactly. a narcissist well, guilty yeah. of murdering his family. It said he, it said he couldn't handle his conflicts, so he ignored them. The book does. Mm -hmm. Joe even provided a possible motive for the crime, which not even the prosecution was able to do. But he said that Jeffrey was regularly taking the amphetamine escatrol to try to lose weight, and he went into a rage from the regular use of the amphetamines and killed his family. Which is, I mean, anything yeah, possible. If that drug does stuff like that. Right. 
The book emphasized the fact that Jeffrey worked extremely long hours and had extensive family and social commitments that resulted in a severe lack of sleep on top of it. So it's reported that Jeffrey thought Joe's book would make him look good and show him as being a good guy and help support his innocence. But when it didn't, he sued Joe. But that ended up in a mistrial, and they settled out of court for 325000 Wow. Which Jeffrey ended up only getting $50,000 worth of <laughs> or something like that. Okay. Like He didn't even get the whole 325000 huh. But there's lingering doubt about Jeffrey's guilt or innocence because of the Helena Stokely confessions or non-confessions or whatever. But as a drug abuser who changes her story all the time, no one's listening. I mean, there, there, there could be, there could have been intruders that and stuff like that that made his story plausible. They would at least give a defense team the ammunition they need to cast some reasonable doubt if there was a way to get a new trial. But that's, mm-hmm. that's how you know, like that's been and gone. It's not going to happen. And I personally tend to think he did it. He's in jail because he's guilty. But people have come forward since the beginning saying that Helena had confessed to them. And there's there are affidavits out there saying that she confessed, different people hearing different things. But we see nothing coming out of this. Right. I yeah. am curious about the hairs they found, though. Yeah, like whose were those? Do they match each other? And one of them mm-hmm. even had a root. Yeah. So... Huh. Whose hairs are these? Yeah. Where? How do they get under the little baby's fingernail? Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, you can pick up a foreign hair. I can go, I can go to church, and whoever sat in the seat before me, I, I'm gonna come home with their hair yeah. on me. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. But if it's the same hair, if they all match, I think that's less likely yeah. that everyone's coming home. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Colette has one on her upper thigh or whatever. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Right. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, he he more than likely he did it. Yeah, most That's most likely I'm, he I'm did it. Of course, leaning or way. or say there were intruders, but I think he was in on it then. Oh yeah, like there's some yeah. degree of involvement here. You're I think right. for sure, personally. Yeah, I agree. I think so too. But that's Jeffrey McDonald. All right. Well, we got all through three of these, right? <laughs> yes, we're done. Wow, we're done with Jeffrey McDonald. Okay. Unless right. something comes out, we have to do a bonus episode. But okay, for this one, we are, okay. we are done. Well, that's a good deal. That'd be interesting to hear. You know, because they could DNA test those hairs or something. That'd be interesting to update. Right. Find out they're mine mm. or yours. Oh, shut your mouth. I wasn't even around back <laughs> I know, then. Right? I wasn't even born. Yes, you were. 1970? Oh, yeah. Not, okay. Not, okay. All right. <laughs> Jeez, thanks. We were there for the trial, though. Yes, we were. <laughs> All right, let us know your thoughts. Uh, you can contact us at wickednesstruecrime at yahoo.com. Check us out at our website at wickednesstruecrimeandtheunknown.com and follow us on Instagram at wickednesstruecrime. Also, check us out on Anchor at anchor.fm slash wickedness where you can also support us if you feel like it by lending your support by clicking on that button, the support button. Don't forget <laughs> to rate, review, and subscribe. And we want to get our podcast out to more people just like you that want to listen to us and not miss any of our awesome episodes. Yeah. So everyone have a great week and we will talk to you later. Bye. Bye.